Welcome back. This is Chicken Philosophy, Martin Luther, Part 1. The beginning of a whole new book here on Chicken Philosophy. There's a number of other books that you can find on the channel. Um, but for today, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to begin a whole new section. And in the interest of... Uh, Usually with the first of these, some people will come and check it out that aren't already familiar with chicken philosophy. For So for the sake of those folks, I'm going to get right to the reading and uh, save my comments and personal you know, relationship with these things until after the reading. So without further ado, uh, Editor Edward, would you mind playing a little music? Ah, very appropriate. Mm, from the, uh, the same time period and general area as Martin Luther. Very clever. Okay. The 95 Theses. Is that how you pronounce the plural of thesis? A disputation to clarify the power of indulgences. 1517. Um, by way of introduction, very quickly, I would like to play um, 45 seconds of a f over four hour long episode of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. I hope that he will forgive me. In 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther nails up a list of complaints about the Catholic Church. Now, folks, doing that is setting yourself up to be burned at the stake. Have you ever done anything that has the potential for that kind of a response? Martin Luther's a very, 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 very brave guy when he posts that list of complaints on that German church door. And he got away with it because the forces were such that he had powerful backers who would keep him from falling into the hands of the people who wanted to burn him at the stake. What Luther kicked off is something known to history as the Protestant Reformation. Okay, so that was from an episode called Prophets of Doom. And I highly recommend. It's not available, unfortunately, it's not available on YouTube for free. It's available on his website for like $3 or less than $3, like two something. Um, if you Google Hardcore History Prophets of Doom, that'll take you to it. It's very good. And it's about kind of a lot of the unintended consequences of, uh, of Martin Luther's work. It goes on from that basic beginning of the description of him to talk about how this was when the Gutenberg Press was brand new. So the first major printing press in Europe, they had one in China before, but anyway... Um, so he not only uh, posted these 95, but he wrote a lot. He wrote these little booklets that would get, you know, hundreds of copies would be printed and distributed, and uh, they were very, you know, illegal. Uh, you could, you know, have severe penalties for owning, for having one with you. And, uh, yeah, it was spreading, spreading a lot of ideas and he also translated the Bible, which up till then had only been read by priests and people who got a copy who spoke Latin or Greek or whatever, or both. Um, and he translated it into the local language, the, you know, German, basically, old, old German, little German, whatever it was. 
so that uh, the common folk could read it. And then in one of his little pamphlets, he said that if there's part that's unclear, you don't have to ask a priest. You can pray to the Holy Spirit, and the, and the Holy Spirit will tell you how to interpret it. Then that's where the unintended consequences came in. It's a very good episode, Prophets of Doom. It's better than this. So if you're looking for good quality con content right now on the subject and you don't mind spending three bucks, then turn off this video, maybe come back to it later. Check out Hardcore History, Prophets of Doom. You won't regret it. All right. So for those who are still here, thank you. That's very nice of you. <clears throat> October 31st. 1517, I skipped the introduction and stuff. I'll read that after we finish the book. It's kind of my MO. Martin Luther, a junior professor at the University of Wittenberg. Dutifully, uh, what is that word? Dutifully, there it is, that's a D. Dutifully mails a letter to his archbishop and changes the world. Just following customs, an act of academic due diligence. He bundled the letter with a couple of other items, a copy of 95 statements, aka theses, on indulgences to be debated publicly at the university and an essay, let's see if I can do this with my eyes, he'd written on the topic. <clears throat> it could easily have gone unnoticed. Someone could have mishandled it on its 300-mile journey from Wittenberg. The archbishop's bureaucracy could have tossed it on the stack of similar mailings, an administrative matter, a non-urgent notice about an upcoming scholarly exercise at one of the universities on lands of the archdiocese. Luther's act was due diligence, expected him, expected from academics who proposed uh, disputations in their field of expertise. He could not imagine he was about to alter the course of history. Yes, that simple act performed at the University of Wittenberg, a backwater town at the edge of the Holy Roman Empire, would lead to the dissolution of Christendom and place an agenda for reform before the Roman Catholic Church that the Mother Church would reject, expelling Luther and his ilk. Thus, Luther's 95 Theses signaled the end of medieval Europe and the beginning of the modern period, and more, which is considerable. Ironically, as earth-shaking and profound as his action was, almost no one at the time noticed, and subsequent generations have struggled to describe it. Despite the current popular depictions on stage, screen, and canvas, Luther's post that day was not a public event or rebellious act. Although there is scant evidence that he actually posted the 39 theses, placard style, on a local church door in Wittenberg, the materials he sent to Albert, Archbishop of Mainz, still exist. Scott Hendricks, eminent scholar of Luther's life and work, put it this way, 
pictures of a defiant Luther with hammer in hand as if he were starting a popular revolt are pure make-believe. Such pictures turned up for the first time in the 19th century. If the 95 theses were posted on the eve of all saints, it was merely an invitation to qualified debaters, not a call to arms. That's it? An open invitation from a junior professor to a debate at a medieval university? Really? Not much drama at a debate, especially when the debaters are qualified. Spectacle, however entertaining, does not always equal substance. That's what Protestants commemorate at and Roman Catholics bemoan every October 31st, if they only knew. Not much drama, but huge historical consequence. Luther's invitation to debate signaled the sunset of medieval Christendom and the dawn of modernity. Although we cannot be sure whether he nailed or mailed the theses or both, and this disputation never actually occurred, the issues raised here would touch a nerve that convulsed Europe. Indeed, the issues in this document and the way it frames those issues led to contentious debates of the issues facing medieval Christendom. Politicians and wealthy landowners took positions on various sides of the issues. The conflict eventuated into what later became known as the Protestant Reformation, or better, the Reformations. So what were indulgences? They were promises made by the church to penitent believers that the punishments required by their sins before entering paradise had been satisfied. They had been forgiven by God's grace. Their salvation and heavenly destination was secure. Yet satisfaction for their sins was still in order. Indulgences were like promissory notes from the church, specifically the pope, that could be obtained by believers to reduce the punishments that awaited them in purgatory. Penitents could obtain indulgences by performing pious actions, go on pilgrimage, venerate relics, observe feast days, and the like. Eventually, the church came to accept monetary contributions as satisfaction for the punishment of sinners. The evolution of indulgences in the theology and practice of the church had not allowed for a full and open conversation about them. As a dutiful professor of theology, Luther wanted, Luther wanted to have that conversation. Little did he know that these theses would change the world, and they would soon catapult him out of his quiet classroom and monastery into the chaos of shifting epochs and clashing cultures. Okay, now we're getting to the actual English translation of what Martin Luther wrote. Here we go. <clears throat> For the love of truth and a desire to elucidate it, the following theses shall be debated in Wittenberg with the Reverend Father Martin Luther, M.A., S.T.M., 
professor of theology presiding. He requests written responses from those unable to attend and debate with us in person. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One. When our Lord and teacher Jesus Christ said, repent, etc., he meant that the entire life of believers be a life of repentance. Two, Jesus' saying does not refer to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by priests. Three, and it does not mean inner repentance only. Mere internal repentance is useless if it does not produce external self-control of one's selfish desires. Four, therefore, the penalty for sin endures so long as the hatred of self lasts, which is true internal repentance until we enter the kingdom of heaven. Five, the Pope does not intend to reduce and cannot reduce any penalties except those under his authority or authorized by canon law. Six, the Pope cannot reduce any guilt. He can only clarify and announce that such guilt is reduced by God. The Pope, however, may certainly lessen penalties in cases under his jurisdiction. Therefore, if the Pope's authority to forgive debts in those cases under his jurisdiction were disregarded, that debt would certainly remain. 7. God reduces no one's guilt without at the same time humbling them in all things and making them submit to the priest as a vicar of God. 8. The penitential canons apply to the living only, and as the canons themselves state, they do not apply to the dead. 7. The Holy Spirit, therefore, is kind to us through the Pope. Insofar as the Pope in his decrees always makes an exception in the case of death and emergencies. 10. Priests act ignorantly and wickedly when they commute canonical penalties of the dying to purgatory. 11. Those weeds of commuting canonical penalties to purgatory were evidently planted while the bishops slept. 12. Earlier, canonical penalties were imposed before, not after, absolution, as tests of true contrition. 13. Death releases the dying from the penalties of canon law and the dead have a right to be released from them. 14. Imperfect piety or love on the part of the dying necessarily brings with it great fear. The smaller the love, the greater the fear. 15. This fear or terror is so close to the terror of despair that in and of itself it matches the penalty of purgatory not to mention the other sorts of punishments. 16. 
The differences between hell, purgatory, and heaven are akin to the differences between despair, fear, and the assurance of salvation. 17. It appears, for the people in purgatory, love should increase and fear should decrease necessarily. 18. Furthermore, neither reason nor scripture prove that souls in purgatory are outside the state of merit, that is, they are unable to grow in love. 19. Nor does it seem proved that souls in purgatory, at least not all of them, are certain and assured of their own salvation, even if we ourselves may be entirely certain of our salvation. 20. Therefore, when the Pope talks about plenary remission of all penalties, he does not actually mean all penalties, but only those he has imposed. 21. Thus, indulgence preachers falsely claim that one is freed from all punishment and is saved by the indulgences of the Pope. 22. Indeed, the Pope cannot reduce the penalties of souls in purgatory that canon law says they should have paid in this life. 23. If remission of all penalties whatsoever could be granted to anyone at all, certainly it would be granted only to the most perfect, that is, to very few. 24. For this reason, most people are necessarily deceived by their indiscriminate and high-sounding promise of release from penalty. 25. The power that the Pope has generally over purgatory corresponds to the power that bishops or pastors have specifically over their own diocese or parishes. 26. The Pope does a good thing when he forgives those who are in purgatory, not by the power of the keys, which he does not have, but by praying for them. 27. The chant, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, is simply a human doctrine. 28. It is certain that when money clinks in the money chest, Greed and avarice can be increased, but when the church intercedes, the result is in the hands of God alone. 29. Who knows whether all souls in purgatory wish to be redeemed, because we have exceptions in the legends of St. Severinus and St. Pascal. <clears throat> 30. No one is sure of the integrity of one's own contrition, much less can one be sure of having received plenary forgiveness. The one who buys indulgences honestly is as rare as the one who is honestly contrite. Indeed, such a person is exceedingly rare. 32. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be ex eternally damned, together with their teachers. 33. We must especially be on our guard against those who say that the Pope's pardons 
are the inestimable gift of God by which we are reconciled to God. 34. The graces of indulgences are concerned only with the penalties of sacramental satisfaction established by human beings. 35. They who teach that contrition is not necessary on the part of those who intend to buy souls out of purgatory or to buy confessional privileges preach unchristian doctrine. 36. Any truly contrite Christian has a right to full remission of punishment and guilt apart from a letter of indulgence. 37. All true Christians, whether living or dead, participate in all the blessings of Christ and the Church, and this is granted to them by God, even without indulgence letters. 38. Still, we do not ignore papal remission and blessing at all, because they are the proclamation of divine remission, as shown above. 39. Even theologians of the highest rank find it exceedingly difficult to tell people that indulgences are useful, while also maintaining the need for true contrition. 40. Truly contrite believers seek out and love their punishments. Indulgences, however, relax penalties and cause contrite persons to hate them. At least, it provides the conditions for hating them. 41. Papal indulgences must be preached with caution, lest people erroneously think that they are preferable to other good works of love. 42. Christians are to be taught that the Pope does not intend that the buying of indulgences should in any way be compared with works of mercy. 43. Christians are to be taught that the one who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than the one who buys indulgences. 44. Because love grows by works of love, a person thereby becomes better. A person does not, however, become better by means of indulgences, but is merely freed from penalties. 45. Christians are to be taught that those who see a needy person and pass by, yet give their money for indulgences, do not buy papal indulgences, but God's wrath. <clears throat> 46. Christians are to be taught that unless they have more than they need, they must reserve enough for their family needs and by no means squander it on indulgences. 47. Christians are to be taught that the buying of indulgences is a matter of free choice, not commanded. 48. Christians are to be taught that the Pope in granting indulgences needs and thus desires their devout prayer more than their money. 49. Christians are to be taught that papal indulgences are useful only if they do not put their trust in them, but very harmful if they lose their fear of God because of them.
50. Christians are to be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the indulgence preachers, then he would prefer that St. Peter's Basilica were burned to ashes than constructed with the flesh and bones of his sheep. 51. We should teach Christians that the Pope would and should wish to give his own money, even selling the Basilica of St. Peter, if he had to, to repay so many from whom the indulgence hawkers cajoled money. 52. It is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters, even through the indulgence hawker or even the Pope, were even though, excuse me, the indulgence hawker or even the Pope were to offer his soul as security. 53. The enemies of Christ and the Pope prohibit the preaching of the word of God in some churches so that indulgences can be preached in others. 54. Whoever devotes an equal amount or more time to indulgences than to the word in a single sermon infringes upon the word of God. 55. It is certainly the Pope's sentiment that if indulgences, which are a very insignificant thing, are celebrated with one bell, one procession, and one ceremony, then the gospel, which is a very, which is the very greatest thing, should be preached with a hundred bells, a hundred processions, a hundred ceremonies. 56. The treasures of the church, out of which the Pope distributes indulgences, are not sufficiently discussed or known among the people of Christ. 37. That indulgences are not temporal treasures is certainly clear, for many indulgence preachers do not distribute them freely, but only gather them. 58. Nor are they the merits of Christ and the saints, for even without the Pope, the latter always work grace, always work grace for the inner person, <clears throat> and the cross death, and hell for the outer person. 59. St. Lawrence said that the poor of the church were the treasures of the church, but he used treasure in the context of his time and place. 60. We have cause to say that the keys of the church, given by the merits of Christ, are that treasure. 61 because clearly the Pope's power applies only to the remission of church-related penalties and legal cases under his jurisdiction. 62. The Church's true treasure is the most holy gospel of God's glory and grace. 63. But this treasure is naturally most odious, for it makes the first to be last. 64. On the other hand, the treasure of indulgences is naturally most acceptable, for it makes the last to be first. 65. Therefore, the treasures of the gospel are nets with which one formerly fished for people of wealth. 
66. The treasures of indulgences are nets with which one now fishes for the wealth of people. 67. Manipulators claim that indulgences are the greatest graces, but they interpret them as such only to promote gain. 68. They are nevertheless in truth the most insignificant graces when compared with the grace of God and the piety of the cross. 69. Bishops and clerics must welcome the representatives of papal indulgences with all due reverence. 70. But they need to be more watchful and listen carefully so that these men do not preach their own dreams instead of misrepresentations of what the Pope has commissioned. 71. Let the one who speaks against the truth concerning papal indulgences be anathema and accursed. 72. But let the one who guards against the lust and license of the indulgence preachers be blessed. 73. Just as the Pope justly thunders against those who, by any means whatsoever, contrive harm to the sale of indulgences. 74. But much more does he intend to thunder against those who use indulgences as a pretext to contrive harm to holy love and truth. 75. To consider papal indulgences so great that they could absolve a person even if they had done the impossible and had violated the mother of God is madness. 76. We say, on the contrary, that papal indulgences cannot remove the very least of venial sins as far as guilt is concerned. 77. To say that even St. Peter, if he were now Pope, could not grant greater graces is blasphemy against St. Peter and the Pope. 78. We say, on the contrary, that even the present Pope, or any Pope whatsoever, has greater graces at his disposal, that is, the Gospel, spiritual powers, gifts of healing, etc., as it is written in 1 Corinthians 12. 79. To say that the cross emblazoned with the papal coat of arms and set up by the indulgence preachers is equal in worth to the crossed cross of Christ is blasphemy. 80. The bishops, pastors, and theologians who permit such talk to be spread among the people must be held accountable for it. 81. This unbridled preaching of indulgences makes it difficult even for the learned to rescue the reverence which is due the Pope from slander or from the shrewd questions of the laity. 82. Such as, why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and the dire need of the souls that are there if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? The former reasons would be more just, the latter is most trivial. 83. Again, 
why our funeral and anniversary masses for the dead continued, and why does he not return or permit the withdrawal of the endowments founded for them, because it is wrong to pray for the redeemed. 84. Again, what is this new piety of God and the Pope that for a consideration of money they permit a person who is impious and their enemy to buy out of purgatory the pious soul of a friend of God, and do not rather, because of the need of that pious and beloved soul, free it for pure love's sake. 85. Again, why are the penitential canons, long since abrogated and dead in fact, and through disuse now satisfied by the granting of indulgences as though they were still alive and in force? 86. Again, why does not the Pope, whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build this one basilica of St. Peter with his own money, rather than with the money of poor believers? 87. Again, what does the Pope reduce or grant to those who by perfect contrition already have a right to full remission and blessing? 88. Again, what greater blessing could come to the church than if the Pope were to bestow these remissions and blessings on every believer a hundred times a day, as he now does but once? 89. Because the Pope seeks the salvation of souls rather than money by his indulgences, why does he suspend the indulgences and pardons previously granted when they have equal efficacy? 90. To repress these very sharp arguments of the laity by force alone, and not to resolve them by giving reasons, is to expose the church and the pope to the ridicule of their enemies and to make Christians unhappy. 91. If, therefore, indulgences were preached in accordance with the spirit and intention of the pope, all these doubts would be readily resolved. Indeed, they would not exist. 92. Away, then, with all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, Peace, peace, there, and there is no peace. 93. Blessed be all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, Cross, cross, and there is no cross. 94. Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, death, and hell. 95. And thus, be confident in entering into heaven through many contritions, many tribulations, rather than through the false security of peace. All right, well said, uh, sir. And uh, that's our reading for today. Um, that was Martin Luther in the document that kind of propelled him to fame. I mean, immortal, immortal kind of fame. And uh, his, his writings did continue and we'll continue to read his writings as they are 
um, recorded in this Penguin Classics, uh, Martin Luther and the 95 Theses I was going to mention a little bit. Um, so my parents, um, they decided to leave it to me rather than, you know, having me baptized as a baby. They decided to leave it to me because my dad was more inclined toward Buddhism. He was raised Christian scientist, so he wasn't baptized. Uh, my mom was baptized, I believe, in an Episcopal church, uh, but, and she wanted to be a rector, um, but they didn't allow that back in the 50s or whenever it was, and so she kind of fell away from uh, the church. But my grandma was very Protestant and a big fan of Martin Luther. And anyway, my parents, in the 70s, before I was born, my dad was a little bit of an amateur demonologist. Now, this was at Cal State LA. He was a teacher at Pasadena City College, Community College. And uh, before Reagan was president, the, uh, the government actually funded uh, metaphysical research in public colleges. You might have seen the movie Ghostbusters at the very beginning of the movie. Um, funding is cut for their, you know, paranormal research and so they're forced to go to the private sector and become the Ghostbusters. Well, that's based on something that actually happened um, around 1980. So before that, um, my dad was participating in exorcisms and stuff like that. And uh, a few other weird things. Anyway, so in around, I don't know what year it was. It was sometime in the 70s. This was a story that was told to me later. I was born in 78, so in around 1988. My mom told me the story of the night that they all woke up and the walls were pounding and they could hear many voices chanting. And my mom was saying, what is that? And my dad was saying, it's trying to, it's playing with my motor nerves on the back of my neck. And she said, get rid of it. And he's like, well, I want to see what it wants first. And she said, don't see what it wants, get rid of it. And he replied, what did you say? Something like that. And his face looked very different. And she was terrified, as anyone would be. And uh, the way she described it, she reverted back to her Episcopal upbringing and started praying very quickly to Jesus and the Virgin Mary to save her and my sister, who was young at the time. And uh, I, of course, wasn't born yet, as I mentioned. And then it was gone. The, the walls stopped pounding. My dad was back to normal. And they could smell the scent of roses in the air. And uh, that story shook me quite a bit. And in my 10-year-old brain, having uh, gone to church with my friend Ryan Barr uh, when we, we were younger, um, and, uh, you know, exposure to my grandma and movies like The Omen probably, I told my mom I, I wanted to be baptized and uh, my dad wasn't baptized. That must be why he was vulnerable um, to, to that because at the college they weren't doing Christian exorcisms. They were doing some kind of sec secular exorcism based on universal love, but they weren't invoking the name of, of Yeshua or Christ, you know. And so, yeah, that all kind of clicked in my brain. I'm like, well, surely, you know, if, if, uh, if, if there's nothing to it, then it won't matter whether I'm baptized or not. But uh, just in case, I think it's pretty important. And so at the time, my grandma was going to a Lutheran church in Doherty, California, a suburb of Los Angeles. And um, so I talked to the priest there. I think he's called a priest. 
And he said, why do you want to be baptized? And I said, well, there's a war going on between heaven and hell, and I want to make sure God knows I'm on his side. And he was kind of taken aback by that and by with the conviction that I was, I didn't tell him, of course, the part of the story that I told you. Um, and uh, yeah, so they arranged it. I don't know, it was a week or two later. And my sister was my godmother. So that's how my sister became my godmother. And I remember there was a shell and, uh, you know, the whole congregation was there. And uh, I remember the water was cold and I was resisting the urge to laugh when they poured it on. But uh, anyway, so that's how I ended up uh, being baptized in a Lutheran church. And uh, now we're reading some Martin Luther. So uh, there you have it. Um, next time, uh, you know, we're on sort of a rotation. So next time it'll be Gwydion, which is basically me with a hat reading another book. And the hell are you wearing? Oh, hi, Gwydion. It's new. I got it at uh, Maldagoa, the uh, United Colors of Benetton. It's nice. Thank you. So that's how you're going to leave the episode? Yeah, I guess. Why? You know whenever you start a new book on chicken philosophy, it attracts a bunch of people that have never seen you before, and you're just going to let them assume that you're a good Lutheran boy and make all kinds of assumptions based on the way you're dressed? You're wearing it too. And what's wrong with how I'm dressed? Nothing, except you look like you're on your way to a Trump rally. What? The last time I voted in a US election was when I switched from Green Party to Democrats, specifically so I could vote for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primaries. Ah, socialist. Democratic socialist. So this isn't the, uh, the, the red of the Republicans, this is more like a communist red. Imagine there's no countries. Oh, sorry, I was just having a moment. Uh-huh, and why the American flag pin? I've been re-watching Twin Peaks and uh, seeing all those, the FBI guys, Cooper and Gordon Cole, walking around with their suits with their little American flag pins. And I thought, I have one of those. So I figured, you know, uh, yeah, the red shirt, like the red room, you know, the red curtains and everything. So it's not to trick people in the Bible Belt into watching your video. What? No, it's the Twin Peaks thing. What do you take me as? So are you Edward? A good Lutheran boy? Sure, why not? Maybe a bit of a black sheep of the family, but maybe you can help me understand something here, because I have here this document from the ecumenical director of the Los Angeles Diocese of the Roman Catholic Church uh, that says here, this is to certify that Edward Charles Reeves, son of John Dan Reeves and Judith Edward Saddam, Born on the day, 21st day of September 1978 in Arcadia, California, having been baptized in another church, was received into the Russian Greek Catholic Church uh, through a profession of faith and chrismation, chrismation, according to the ritual of the Greek Catholic Church on the 8th day of April, 2007. Right, right. See, what happened was the cult I was in at the time was predominantly Catholic in the higher grades. And uh, the beings that were talking to us through the leader, I, it sounds, it's its ridiculous. I, I admit I left a long time ago. But anyway, the uh, these beings were... Um, guiding us to save Jerusalem, you know, from all the war and the region and between the Abrahamic religions and everything. And somehow that meant that we all had to join uh, one of the, you know, mainstream recognized apostolic 
churches. Why does it say Russian Greek Catholic Church on here instead of Roman Catholic? Okay, so one of one of the leaders, one of my my teachers at the time was a bit rebellious and so he became Greek Orthodox rather than Roman Catholic and he was kind of encouraging me to to do the same and so I determined that to try to bridge the gap between him and the cult leader I would find one of the Orthodox churches that operate within the Roman Catholic Church so they like they're under the Vatican but they're they're Orthodox, they do all the Orthodox ceremonies, and inspired by the Lady of Fatima, I decided to find one that was Russian. And uh, I'm sure whether you're talking about Putin's Russian Orthodox Church or the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia that formed after the Communist Revolution, or talking about the Russian Orthodox Church within the Catholic Church, uh, they would all agree that the original Russian Orthodox Church was based on the Greek Orthodox Church. And so uh, I think what it is is that the Greek Catholic Church was already well established and so the Russian Catholic Church, the Russian Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church kind of like is connected with them and so hence Okay, so you're Catholic. Actually the, the Lutheran baptism is acknowledged and recognized by the Catholic Church. So the chrismation is like a confirmation. So, I mean, you could say I'm, you know, sense both Lutheran and Catholic. Interesting, interesting. Uh, which brings me to the second document I have here. It says, uh, Certificate of Conversion. This is to certify that Edward Charles Reeb, son of John Dan Reeb, has renounced his present Christian religion and being embraced after influenced by ideology of Hindu religion, want to adopt Hindu religion without any force with his or her own sweet will or pressure. It goes on. Okay. I was in India and uh, I met Priyal and we got married in a Hindu temple in uh, Tamil Nadu in 2019 and then but then the Brahmins wouldn't fill out the paperwork because they assumed I was Christian because I'm white even though all my paperwork said that I'm Buddhist uh, so so yeah so I just kept renewing my tourist visa and every six months I'd have to leave for Nepal and come back to you know start another visa renew the visa so then COVID hit and uh, yeah, they were extending people's visas, but my visa was going to expire and I wasn't going to be able to leave and start a new one or anything like that. So it kind of became urgent that we make the marriage legal and formal so that I could move to a different type of visa and eventually to an OCI. So um, there is a precedent, I think it was established in the 1950s, that allows interfaith marriage in India to be legally recognized, but rather than going through all those processes and all those steps in the middle of the lockdown, um, it was much easier to one of the, do one of these quick and dirty uh, conversion and marriage ceremonies and then just take the paperwork to the government and then I could apply for the entry visa as opposed to the tourist visa. So that's, that's basically what happened. But we did have the, uh, the original, when, after the Hindu ceremony, we went to a church and had it blessed by the, had the marriage blessed by the priest there. A Lutheran church? It was a Catholic church. I see. And uh, 
I suppose my last question would be, how the hell do you explain this guy? Mine is the sort of Hinduism that embraces uh, great masters, sages, and holy men like Lord Buddha, Mahavir, uh, Guru Nanak, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, and uh, of course our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Sounds like you're not the black sheep of the family. You're more like the goat. Aw, thank you, Gwydion. Why are you thanking me? I'm saying I'm the goat, greatest of all time. I'm really touched. I'm not talking about that stupid millennial algorithm. I'm talking about revelation, separating sheep from goats. I know, I know. I'm just fucking... I know, I know. Tune in next time, everybody. I will be the host, and I will be reading some of the Islamic mysticism. Inshallah. <laughs>